let's talk about the aversion because when fear comes up, we have a thought, we have some emotion, we feel it in our bodies. And for many of us, we, we, we want to end this feeling. I don't want to feel this. And so we do things to distract ourselves. We do a whole bunch of things, other behaviors that aren't productive, default behaviors that aren't productive, like avoiding or, or overcompensating and making a mess of it. So the biggest thing you want to do is actually, and this is going to sound almost woo-woo, but you want to sit there when you're feeling fear is you actually want to sit there and just feel it, explore it, in fact, is how we talked about it. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, this week is very interesting because I just finished interviewing JP. Now, JP is author of the book, Performing Under Pressure, The Science of Doing Your Best When It Matters Most. Now, it's interesting because JP, as a consultant, one of his number one focuses is for people to develop emotional intelligence. And I think just about every show in my introduction or with somebody else, we talk about how important that is, yet how lacking it is, and that people are just not self-aware. Now, one of the things that he focuses on, and he has a podcast talking about the last 8%. You know, when we get into fear, when we get into these situations where we don't do the final bit, we don't share that final piece that's on our mind or do the decision that we have to make, all these things. Now, as a result of that, my encouragement is, is that emotional intelligence comes out of knowing self. Do you really, really know yourself well? And are you connected to that? Are you aware of what your strengths and dynamics are that's going on? And those things that you might not be as strong in. So my encouragement is, is that you would consider uh, if you already haven't done so, if you've completed our personal style indicator assessment, which is rated number one by participants around the globe, if you've completed that, great. But what we've now launched is an e-course a full understanding of personal style of yourself of others and again our ability to serve others is equal to or less than our own development so have you taken the time to learn now the other thing that JP talks about he says that the number one skill outside of J, uh, sort of emotional intelligence is this whole concept of lifelong learning in that if you're not using your brain, it is rotting. <laughs> so the only way really to grow or even stay the same is to learn. And so are you doing the learning? Now, first of all, you are because you are listening to the SOS podcast. So thank you for that. And my encouragement is, is that you would help others to get connected to the show if that's possible. So as a thank you, can you share the show? If you like what we're doing, pass it on, let other people know about it, leave a positive comment on whatever platform that you're listening on. And we very, very much appreciate your feedback or thoughts of the show. And if you have some you know, great insights that our guests have left with you, then share that with us so we can get that to them. And they can be encouraged from your comments as well and the work that they did and they gave it complimentary to you. So thank you again for listening. Now here's our show with J.P. Paulu Fry, who's written the book, Performing Under Pressure. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes, and thank you for listening. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today we wanna talk about the top 8%. What does that mean? Well, we're gonna be able to discover that is that our success in life isn't doing the 90, it's getting to that last little bit where the gems are, where there's discovery to be made. 
where the insights are to be had. And we have an expert on this who has written a book on this. It's been all around the world, multiple, multiple languages and countries. And so welcome to the show, J.P. Palu Fry. Now, J.P., you say your last name correctly so our listeners get it right. Yeah, Ken, I think you did pretty well. Palu Fry, you got it. Palu Fry. So if I say it fast enough, away we go. So, J.P., thank you again for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Excited to be here. Excited to spend time and uh, hopefully uh, have a bit of fun. Well, that's always a requirement of SOS. So (laughs) when we think about our SOS listeners, what we typically do on the show, JP, is really get to know our guests and their journey uh, before we get into their expertise. And I'm, you know, very keen to get in this New York Times bestseller book and the content that you have really put together for other individuals to serve them. But before we get there, so JP, a little bit of your background. Where were you born? I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, in Canada. Then uh, oh, and you and you're actually willing to admit that I I I am. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like you had a lot of control over it, right? Well, exactly. And in fact, at age six weeks old, we moved to sunny Vancouver and uh, grew up there and then moved to Toronto for kind of for high school and beyond, university, et cetera. Okay. What did your parents do for a living? Yeah, so that's a great question. My parents were both born and raised on farms in Saskatchewan. My father worked at uh, John Deere, the tractor company on the construction side, and he got moved around from uh, Yorkton to Winnipeg to Vancouver to Toronto. In fact, it was Grimsby, which is just outside of Hamilton. That's where the headquarters for Canada was for John Deere. And we lived in a little suburb of Toronto called Burlington and, you know, had a great kind of upbringing there. And so my dad, at about about my age, in fact, I'm 52, when he was 53, he quit and he had, a, you know, I think a pretty good career, but he and my mom got into rental real estate and ended up, you know, buying houses, renting them and, and kind of enjoyed that for another 20 years. And they're still fantastic today, sharp and they're around 87 years old and just awesome parents. Oh, great. Well, it's nice to hear that. Now, interesting, I don't know if you knew or not, but I actually grew up on the dairy farm and worked for Massey Ferguson during my college summers to pay for my uh, degrees. So there is a little connection to the agricultural community. Pardon me? We don't recognize the color red, sorry. I know. Not a lot in our family. Yeah, of course not. You're just all green. That's like my friend down the road. He couldn't possibly, if it's not a deer, it doesn't exist. There you go. I get it. I know there's a leader. like a deer. Yeah, for sure. One of my friends actually owns a John Deere dealership out here. So I get that. I understand it. And <laughs> I'll forgive you for it. You, you do make a better product, but so we, we digress. <laughs> uh, now, with that, with all the travel, what did that do to you as a teenager? Were you being, or even as a child, just being uprooted and moved around? How did that affect you? Yeah, I mean, truly not in a great way. Not, not, not in a bad way, I mean, because I spent really kind of almost like middle school and high school in Burlington. My parents still live in the same house today. So if anything, I mean, they've almost been there 40 years. I I Mm. kind of feel like, in fact, we didn't move as much as some other friends of mine. But it does sound like that. You know, I didn't obviously recognize the six-week-old move. Um, I certainly do remember the move from Vancouver to to Toronto. And, And that was, I mean, to be honest, that was a pretty big deal. But it was a pretty positive experience for me, I have mm. to say. But I can imagine, I, I think why your question is a great one is, I can imagine for someone who moves, 
you know, through military or for whatever reason, five or six or eight times over the course of 10 or 12 or 15 years, that, that's got to be difficult. So fortunately, mm -hmm. it, it wasn't too bad for me. Right. So then you finished high school. Uh, what did you do? Did you go to university or what was sort of your progress after that? Sure. So, so I, I did. I went to Queens University in Kingston, did a couple of degrees there, kind of in the sciences, and then went on to do more training in a couple of different places. So in Toronto, I did a four-year chiropractic degree. I also went and was fortunate enough to do some training at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center with John Kabat-Zinn. And you might know his name through, from the mindfulness work, mm -hmm. but I was lucky enough to train, do some post-grad clinical training there. And then I also did some training uh, with Herb Benson and his group at Harvard at the, what would it be called, Mind-Body Medical Institute at Harvard. And so that kind of shaped, actually, you know, I'll say this, that shaped me, but I think the bigger learning, because I think you're asking about my background in education, I think the fact that I was fortunate enough to take a couple of gap years and spent, you know, a fair amount of time, not the whole time, but a fair amount of time in monasteries in Asia, I think that actually had the biggest influence on me. That's actually mm -hmm. what got me to think about coming back and doing some of this training in the Boston area, because that's where some of the best, still is to today in some ways, some of the best research going on around mind-body medicine, psychoneuroimmunology, that whole field. Wow. Now, you just slipped that in about going to Asia, uh, just to, as a sidebar. How did that come about? Yeah, great question. So when I was finishing my undergrad, I, I mean, I've always been a curious sort, and I was kind of a, a seeker, and I was taking a world religion course, and I thought, oh, that's kind of fascinating. And uh, I wanted to take a year off, and found myself in Thailand and met someone who said, oh, I just came from a 10-day silent meditation retreat. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, you know, radical mm -hmm. or interesting. And of course, you know, and I did a 10-day co uh, course and, and I did another one and so on and so on and spent time in monasteries in uh, Hong Kong, mainly Thailand, but also in Hong Kong, but also in India. And it, it really stimulated in me this idea that, we have an internal technology that we are not aware of. And mm. for someone who has a bit of ADHD, which I do, mm. um, where tension was my challenge more than hyperactivity, it was such an antidote that I was like, wow, this is, this is something. So I thought, I'm going to bring it back to the West, not knowing that, of course, people, you know, had, had this is 1989. People had, you know, preceded me in a big way. But what was great about that is that there were some fantastic centers again, in the northeast of the U.S., but in many other places, I'm sure, as well. But at the time, um, both in terms of the study, but like, you know, kind of research and academia, but also for me going to um, retreat centers. And so it has, it's been a 30-year kind of, or however many years it's been now, 30 years, I guess. Mm. And it really has influenced me. I mean, it's influenced my professional work. I would not be doing what I'm doing right now without that experience. And um, so, I mean, I could talk a lot about that, and it really was something else. Well, if you think about it, one of our colleagues, John Gray, did the same thing. Right. So he had spent some time there, and, of course, he wrote the book, uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, or the other way right. around. Yeah, right. Uh, and I was on the stage with John, but many people don't know that he spent a time, it's sort of in that same process as well. So this ability to be silent and have attention. I, basically, our society, would you not say, is the opposite of that now? 
Yeah, I mean, especially now with, you know, our cell phones. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, just the term cell phone, it, it's like we're locked in a cell. We just don't know it. <laughs> you know, well, say what, JP, I've never heard that before, but that yeah. certainly does make sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So I think that um, as a way to grab our attention and give us a hit of dopamine every time we have some kind of notification, you know, that along with just, you know, how fast things are moving. And, and here's the part that I think for me was so impactful. I walked away, you know, when people ask me, because like I, you know, I still do 10 day and sometimes longer uh, silent meditation retreats, people say, well, isn't it hard not talking? And it's actually not hard not talking. It's hard not doing because you spend all this time from 5.30 in the morning till 9.30 at night not doing. You do one hour of sitting meditation followed by one hour of walking meditation followed by sitting, walking, sitting, walking all day. And there's a, you know, a, a talk in the evening, there's meals. But the bottom line is like you're really looking inside. And for me, the most amazing part is to understand a little bit more of the terrain inside my mind mm. that... I, we all have this stream of thoughts that come and go. It's like a sine wave of stimuli. And most of us grab, in, grab onto and get hooked by some of the stimuli, a, a thought or an emotion or an experience or a fantasy of the future or a memory of the past. And it ends up being that we, we're so caught that we're not actually present. And so I think the practice is a great way to understand ourselves, our mind, and then to have a different a relationship to the experiences that we have in the moment. Um, and I could, again, go on just about this, but to me, I think that was really powerful because today we're asked to be more agile than ever. We're asked to change as fast as the world is changing around us. And if you, let's say, do, you know, have a meditation practice, a mindfulness practice, you actually start to see that inside our mind is changing as fast as things are changing outside. And you, you create a bit of capability to be with what at first feels like the difficulty of this constant change but then you start to realize no this is just the way the world is this is the way that my mind is and now we're less attached and we can move and be more agile and be more adaptable mm. so in fact in some ways i understand now why mindfulness today has become such a big thing it, it didn't 30 years ago but it certainly has today and i'm really grateful for some of the people who have really popularized the term mm. well i agree i agree you know be here now <laughs> our friend on the West Coast who wrote that sure. uh, book yeah. that, of course, yeah. Oprah embraced as part of that whole uh, movement a few years ago. But let's just go back for a second. You said that you actually uh, studied as a chiropractor. Did you That's ever um, practice? Uh, you know, briefly for part of a year. And it, it, I actually loved the training because of the neurology. I'm really interested in neuroscience. And the fortunate part of that four years was how much time we had both dissecting cadavers, dissecting the brain, uh, and learning about the different pathways. And so for me, that was probably, again, another really impactful experience that, that I loved the learning and it kind of helped me build kind of where I am today in terms of my, my learning. But it's not something that I practiced uh, for very long. Oh. Well, it, obviously you are a lifelong learner and you love to consume. Uh, information in learning. So here you are, you've finished this sort of time in Asia, you came back, what led you onto the path of helping others? Sure, well I mean I think that's a, 
a great question. I'll go back to my parents for that, really. We were a foster family for 26 years, and you learn pretty quickly. Well, first of all, you don't know what's really going on when you have kids living with you, because it, it doesn't kind of make sense initially. And then you start to, that becomes your life, that you always have someone living with you, sometimes a couple of people. You know, there was a family of biological four kids, and then we always would have one or sometimes two others. So I think I learned through modeling from my parents, I mean, especially my, my mom on this, the idea of service um, mm. and the idea of how fortunate we were and why it's important to, you know, be helpful to others who might not have the same opportunity. So I think that's the real answer around your question. But, but I think you're also, you know, looking for, well, okay, how did I start doing what I'm doing? And, and I'll say this, when I came back from UMass, University of Massachusetts, I was teaching at a, a psychiatric hospital outside of Toronto for patients with chronic stress and chronic pain. It was an outpatient, a behavioral health outpatient clinic. And we were teaching mindfulness. Um, this is, you know, 25 years ago, and I loved it. And some business people and then some athletes heard about it or took it and said, hey, can you teach us? And it was so funny because I'm like, well, you know, I don't know, but I have a big interest in sport. So, sure, you know, and, and it just started to develop so much so that in 1998 or so, we kind of realized, you know, I'm also a bit of an entrepreneur, just again, from my parents' maybe background. And so I thought, hey, I, I can do this on my own. I don't necessarily need to be affiliated with the hospital. And so we went out and we started the, the organization and, um, and, and then it's just grown from there. And so, you know, I, I think... There's so many things that drive our, our behavior and our action taking. And there's a ton of research on this. And, you know, what, what was it for me? You know, mm -hmm. I don't know, but I'll say this. When I was in grad school, something that hit me was I had to give a presentation to about 150 people. And I remember getting up and presenting. And, and the topic, I was like mildly interested in it, like, you know, somewhat. I don't even know what, what the topic was. But I remember leaving that 45-minute presentation just kind of full of juice. And I thought, wow, I really like presenting. Didn't know that at all. This is like I'm 24, 25 now, maybe, maybe older. I didn't know that at all, Ken. And so then it, it hit mm -hmm. me. I'm like, wow. And it still didn't hit me for a while how I moved into what I'm doing now. But my goodness. So there's both the service, but also I realize that this is something that I have a passion around that gives me juice. And so when the two line up, you know, I think for all listeners, that's an, that's an important point. Think about, you know, what you love to do, you know, the things that give you juice, and then how it can serve something bigger than yourself. And those, when you cross those two kind of circles, like in a Venn diagram, that's when it gets pretty powerful. Because for some of the stuff that I do, and I know this is the same for you, Ken, when we're doing this kind of work, I feel, I'm sure you feel, indefatigable. I could just do this all day and all night. I really could. And I, you know, a big thing of what I do now is, you know, I, I speak. That's probably the big part of what I do in our organization. I could speak all the time everywhere because I absolutely love it. And mm -hmm. so anyway, long-winded answer to your, uh, to your question. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I've been in this industry uh, like you for a while. And recently, in the last couple of months, I had more presentations than I've had in a while. And I've never enjoyed it more. And I've done 3,000 paid presentations. 
Wow. So it's when you think about that, so, you know, for those of you that are listening, you know, uh, JP and I are not having this conversation for self-centered reasons, <laughs> is that are you paying attention to, as you said, juice, or we'll say purpose, and those things that inspire you, those energize you. They don't drain you. They they able to equip you with this whole area of just vibrating your body at another level. So thank you for that, JP, of just sharing that in our encouragement to our listeners that they would pay attention to those things as well. For sure. Now, when you think about, and you know, let's skip into your book. And then of course your company is called Institute for Health and Human Potential. Uh, correct? That's correct. And you know, our big focus is building the skill, that essential skill of the 21st century workplace building the skill of emotional intelligence at scale. So we work with organizations all over the world and we work at all levels, like the senior CEO and their team all the way to the front line with product that helps organizations adapt, build the skill at scale. That's, that's our whole purpose. Well, and you think about it, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's what we, uh, you know, have our own assessments and personality assessments. And when you think about the lack of emotional intelligence that's out there, in how socially awkward or ill-equipped many people are, it's, it's a bit shocking. <laughs> the, the need for emotional intelligence is so high. Well, yeah, I think there's a couple of things that, that you're hitting on. Number one, and it depends on the field, but in some of the fields that we work in that are more kind of you know, tech and ops, engineering, you know, and, and you may have seen, you know, we do a lot of work with groups like the U.S. Navy, U.S. Army, NASA, uh, Intel, all these engineering-rich groups, Silicon Valley organizations, um, or in finance or in you know banking, there's a lot of folks who have a lot of technical skill. And in fact, they're plenty smart. But mm -hmm. what they often find is at a certain point in their career, they start to struggle because what got them to that point won't get them beyond if they're not able to have enough emotional intelligence to do two things really, manage themselves under pressure when they have to do difficult things, but number two, be able to connect and work with others in a way where others feel safe to have, you know, productive conversations, where others feel safe to take a risk on a new idea and be innovative. And so I think, you know, there's this, not lack, but it, it's a skill that anyone can learn but I think there are certain groups of people who haven't had to learn up to a certain point and then mm -hmm. they struggle. And so I think when you, when, you, when you put that together with just how fast things are changing today, you know, the speed of change in technology with Moore's Law, which for over 50 years now continues to be true. Um, and so, you know, it's... Well, I'll just, sort of, JP, sorry to interrupt your flow, but think about it. Here we are, we are recording a podcast digitally you're sitting in your home office i'm at my home office though i have a, a team and you have a team that's outside of it who would have thought this was even possible you know 25 years ago and yeah. if you were you're using the word 1998 that is when email was just starting to evolve yeah that's a, that's a great point I mean, you, I mean think about it and just yeah. the ability to consume and learning and now e-courses and all the things that go on it didn't even wasn't even there 30 years ago yeah that's a great point you know, we find, we have a, a course, a live online facilitated course in emotional intelligence that kind of goes over the course of a week. And what's amazing is that clients are loving the fact that they're not paying. Think about getting a group of 20 or 30 people together for a, a mm -hmm. two-day or one-day training course. 
for those folks, they are not paying for them to fly somewhere. They're not paying for hotel. They're not paying for food and miscellaneous. They're paying it all towards a course. And so they can train more people because of this technology, because of mm-hmm. this disintermediation now. And I mean, I worry now for not worry that much, but you know, there are different businesses that are, are, are going to struggle unless they find a way to adapt. But on the learning side, it's almost like the learn. Learning itself has never been more important, and learning has never been so easy. Mm-hmm. And so the real question is, and this comes to some of our research, which I'm pretty passionate about, and I'm going to challenge all the listeners who are, who are on today, are you an aggressive learner? Are you able to challenge yourself to learn something new? In our research and, and others' research, we find that high performers are not perfect. They make mistakes, especially under pressure. But high performers, in spite of being imperfect, what they do, they do a number of things different than the average. And one of the big things is that they are able to learn in a more aggressive way. High performers extract, I love this stat, three to five times more information from the same opportunity to learn as an average performer. Think about that. So, so like, first of all, so yeah, that is amazing stat. I've never heard that before, and I'm taking notes of it, so I'm going to hijack that. Sure. How are, they, how are they able to do that, JP? What do they do differently that they're able yeah. to extract more? Great, great question. It really starts with self-awareness. What do we do when we're under pressure? Because what comes out under pressure is our character, right? Like we see more about ourselves. We, we, we have the potential to learn more about ourselves when we're under pressure than at any other time, number one. So there's a self-awareness piece. Number two, there's a willingness. So one of the challenges for folks who you know, have had some success and I've worked, you know, as you know, with NFL, NBA teams, Olympic athletes, and other folks, is that part of the challenge, and it's not even sometimes conscious, but when you have a level of success, you kind of think you've made it. And you're, you think, you know, you, you think you, you know everything there is to, to know because you've gotten to a certain level. I remember outside the 1996 training center in Atlanta, there was a sign that said, if you think you're ripe, you've begun to rot. And honestly, at the time, Ken, I thought, oh, that's a trite saying, but now I absolutely mm-hmm. believe it to be true. If we feel like we've learned everything there is to know, we will begin to rot. And so there's, there's not only self-awareness, but there has to be this willingness to say, you know, I want to continue to learn. I'm not complete. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. the complete article. None of us are. And mm-hmm. so if you can marry those two pieces together with, again, those areas that really turn you on, that give you juice my gosh, it is such an exciting time to be alive. Like the number of podcasts that I listen to, and you've got a fantastic one, Ken. The number of great places to go and learn, whether it be a, you know, I, I listen to a lot of long lectures. Like right now I'm listening to Thomas Friedman. Four days ago he was on IQ Squared in England, and he was interviewed for about an hour and 15 minutes. I can listen to that all day. To go for a walk or to do the dishes and to listen to this kind of stuff for me, I'm like mm. absolutely in my element. And so for anyone who's listening, again, if you can extract three to five times more information than the average in any moment, you know, when you get feedback, when someone, you know, when you when, when a project goes awry, any situation, number one, so you can bring self-awareness, then bring some real kind of ability to, to a willingness to say, hey, I, you know, there's more to learn. And then number three, to, to really push yourself and to find that area that that you can really get excited about those three elements together. Oh my goodness. I mean, that's organizations want people like this today because you know, this ability to be 
like this learning agility, and this is really a big part of emotional intelligence because the thing we know is that what stops people is fear. They don't have skills to manage their brain, and fear stops them. Fear stops mm. them. And that's, to me, sad because it's a skill you can learn. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And now, you're familiar with Martin Sigelman's work, right? Learned Optimism? Absolutely. And Martin was kind enough to let me put a chapter in my latest book, The Quest of Purpose. But one of his, his organization did a study and said, I think was one of the top three elements that contributed to well-being was that you were committed to lifelong learning. Right. Absolutely. So even from a health point of view, is that if we stop learning, you do rot. You, literally, your, your body, your immune system, everything is negatively affected when you stop learning. Yeah, but that's it. And, you know, there's, in some ways, I think it's a little trite. But I remember, you know, somebody saying like a baby, in order to thrive, has to continue to learn, which is true. We know that for sure. And then I think, or sorry, they would say, well, you know, what differentiates us from babies? You know, we need to keep learning in order to thrive. And I think there's some truth in that. Um, and especially when you look at some of the data around longevity, some of the data around seniors who age well, mm-hmm. and, you know, that piece of learning. I mean, by the way, just for the brain, right, you know this. We go to, you know, listeners, mo- not most, some percentage of us go to the gym every day or we do some exercise for our physical body. Bravo, right? 25 years ago, we didn't do this. 30 years ago, we didn't do this. If you went for a run 35, 40 years ago, people thought you're running away from something, right? You know, someone's chasing you. That's not the case today. People exercise. Well, I'll tell you, I think, and it's already happening. I think in five and 10 years, because now what we know about neuroplasticity, we will be going to the, the gym for our brain, which a big part of that is learning. A big part of that is things like mindfulness and meditation. A big part of it is some of the other online learning tools. So I think that is going to be the next frontier. And, and we know that neuroplasticity, which is, you know, whatever you do, your brain changes to reflect that. So if you do nothing, your brain becomes nothing, truly. If you continue to learn and challenge yourself, your brain will continue to grow and challenge itself. It'll lay down neuropathway, myelin, specifically a sheath. That, that, that is what learning is about. So you're so right, both on the health side, but also on the, on the flourishing side. Mm. Thank you for that, JP. And again, uh, it's really sh- shocking sometimes when you read stats, and I forget the exact number. I think it's like 85% of people never read another book after college. Wow, I was not... Huh, I, that's a, I think it's somewhere around that's, that number. That's heartbreaking. Now, that's not to say that you're not on your phone reading an article or the latest news about some kind of individual, but actually consuming a book, which is learning rather than just information about some accident or something like that, which is different than what we're talking about here. Right. So you're, you're taking yourself to the next level, a new skill level, a new insight about certain information. Now, we only have about 12 or 13 minutes left. So let's jump right into this, you know, performance under pressure in this last 8%. What can you share with the audience around this 8% concept that sure. can transform them and they can embrace uh, after the end of this show? Sure. So I'm going to ask everyone listening to think about when, when I say, when we say the last 8%, now what, what comes into your mind? Because for different people, different things come into their mind. But I can tell you from our research, we survey about 40,000 people a month and we have for many years. 
what we know is that when we face a difficult situation where, where fear is involved, many of us, as opposed to approaching the last 8% of what we need to do to make good on that situation, we avoid it. We procrastinate on it. And this could be a conversation we need to have with someone, or we even start the conversation, but when we get to that last 8%, you know, we say 85, 90, 92% of what we want to say, but when we get to the last 8%, we notice, you know, and, and there are consequences attached to what we're saying for the other person, and we see they're, they're starting to get emotional. They're starting to get triggered. They start to infect us with their emotion. All of a sudden, as opposed to approaching that last 8%, we avoid it. And the yeah. problem is that they can't read our mind. They don't know we didn't have the full conversation. Many times we leave the conversation thinking, yeah, I talked about most of what I wanted to talk about. And we delude ourselves into thinking we had the last 8% conversation, and we didn't. And the problem is a couple months later, you know, they're looking at us going, why are you being passive-aggressive, JP? And I'm looking at them going, why aren't you doing what we talked about? And the problem is we never had the last 8% conversation. Uh, George Bernard Shaw has a great quote. He said, the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. It never took place. And so last 8%, our original research was around conversations, but it's branched out now to last 8% decisions. When we have a difficult decision to make and we put it off and we put it off, we avoid it, we avoid it. Um, and, and so Any examples that you could, for the listeners on the decision side? Oh, sure. That you'll go stuff off the top of your head there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, probably, you know, maybe one of the bigger ones that, that we see, that I see, is uh, when it comes to people. And what I mean by that is, let's say you're a manager, um, and we find that kind of this last 8%, um, individuals, when someone's kind of not doing what they should be doing, they're not carrying their weight, managers... Are, don't make the decision to do something about it fast enough. They, they wait way too long. They actually end up losing respect from everyone else in the organization because they've waited too long. I'll tell you a quick story about this. Doc Rivers, who I worked with, he was with the Orlando Magic. He said to me once, JP, if you don't deal with the underperformers in the room, you'll lose the room. And what he meant by that is, you know, everyone else in that locker room are, are, are going to lose respect because they see that you're not dealing with this person who's letting the whole team down. And so ultimately you're the one who's losing, right? And so that would be a decision. Another one is on the positive side, sometimes as a manager, we don't move people up fast enough because, you know, for whatever reason. Um, and so, or we, we, we don't want to give people feedback that can be kind of crossed into conversation. I mean, by the way, sometimes they, there's a whole bunch of areas that this crossed into. One of our clients, KPMG, said, oh, my gosh, this is, we see this in audits. They, they have a whole audit group, as all the big four mm -hmm. accounting firms do. And they said, oh, my goodness, a lot, not a lot. They, and they didn't have data. This was more anecdotal on their part. But they're like, we think a lot of our auditors don't go and do the last 8%. Because that's where it, get, it gets a bit dicey. It gets more uncomfortable, right? This is, this is when it gets more emotional for the different people who are in that situation. And generally speaking, you know, we don't want to hurt people's feelings. We want people to like us. And so we, we tend to avoid. The other part, actually, I have to say is we also see this is, and it's a smaller part, but sometimes because we don't manage the fear in our brain, 
So it either can cause us to avoid, but it can also cause us to not be at our best. And so we actually make a mess of it, right? So we have the conversation, but boy, did we ever impact someone because fear was driving our brain. We couldn't think as clearly as we normally can. And now I've said something that upset the other person. And so we either avoid or we make a mess of it. That's kind of the whole idea around the last 8%. And what's neat is that I've got a whole uh, podcast that's coming out on this concept, which I'm so excited about uh, in the fall. Mm. And of course, of course, these podcasts are hosted forever. So maybe when a person's listening to this, it's already out. So <laughs> exactly. go, so go check out the last 8% podcast. And what we do on it is we interview really interesting people both have some expertise that can help us understand, you know, human behavior, because that's really what the podcast is about, helping, mm-hmm. be, helping people become students of human behavior. So, so we're going to ask them about, you know, human behavior, but also we're going to ask them about their last 8%, when they avoided, when they approached. Mm-hmm. We have Bill Browder on who wrote Red Notice, who, I don't know if you know his story, but, you know, he was the guy who was an investor in Russia, and he said, hey, there's lots of corruption going on. Putin didn't like it. Putin started to... Uh, you know, threaten him. Browder left the country. Uh, Putin killed Browder's uh, accountant, Sergei Magnitsky. And now Putin's been driving the Magnitsky Act in the UK and US, Canada. And so we had Bill Browder on and he talked about facing that last 8%. In fact, he said, you know, amazingly, he said in that last 8%, I didn't push Sergei to leave the country. And I feel so bad about that, that now I'm actually not overcompensating, but he said, now I'm not afraid to really dive into the last 8%, even though my, my life is being threatened because I feel so on purpose to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to make Sergey's life mean something. So it's powerful stuff. Mm, absolutely. Now, when you think about this word fear, and, and we don't have time to delve deep, what would you say to the audience here to be able to overcome some of these fears that hinder us? All of us have it at, at some point or another. Uh, just because JP's talking about it doesn't mean he doesn't, or I don't. I probably had some yesterday. Is uh, How do we break through these fears, and what would be one or two ways to do it? Yeah, great question. Um, and, it, and it is a lifelong bit of work, because you really got to get to know yourself. So... You know, when I have fear and it comes up in different ways, shapes and sizes, the biggest thing that we do, and this is what the meditation practice, the mindfulness practice is all about, as opposed to when something comes up that we don't like, we have a version we want to push it away, or something comes up we like and we want to grab towards it and have attachment. What we really need to do is be able to sit with it, without aversion, without attachment. But let's talk about the aversion, because when fear comes up, We have a thought, we have some emotion, we feel it in our bodies. And for many of us, we want to end this feeling. I don't want to feel this. And so we do things to distract ourselves. We do a whole bunch of things, other behaviors that aren't productive, default behaviors that aren't productive, like avoiding or or, or overcompensating and making a mess of it. So the biggest thing you want to do is actually... And this is going to sound almost woo-woo, but you want to sit there when you're feeling fear is you actually want to sit there and just feel it, explore it, in fact, is how we talked about it, mm. right? So we've got a little acronym, um, and, and the first part is to explore it, is to sit there and just, what does it feel like in my body? What does it feel like in my thoughts, my brain? What does it feel like in, in my emotions? And just explore it and just sit there and watch it and see what happens. And what's amazing is that when you explore it like this, 
you start to see that it comes and it goes. It's like that sine wave that I talked about at this top end of the show. And that's why you want to practice. That's why you do your 10 minutes a day of mindfulness, not just because it, cha- it literally does change your brain in doing 10 minutes a day in terms of your, you know, there, there, there's growth in certain parts, the parts that help us control our emotions, number one. But number two, it gives you insight into how things come and go. And because we know, if, if you know that things come and go, all of a sudden you don't have to get hooked by it. You can just see it come and then you see it go. And in that moment, you actually have grown a capability to deal with ever more difficult things, including fear. Now, this is hard for people who've never practice mindfulness or you know this might not make sense because it's got to be a bit more of an experiential um, learning but I'll tell you this is this is the promise of mindfulness this is the promise of learning how our brain works and managing fear because at the end of the day we are going to be asked to do more things like this because of the way the world is changing and those who can do this in a more powerful way they're the ones who are going to own the world you know Alvin Toffler had a great you know line he said you know, the illiterate of the future will not not be able to learn and learn, uh, uh, read and write. The illiterate of the future will be unable to learn, unlearn, and relearn. That's where we're at right now. And so this is like, this is mission critical for everyone listening. Find a way to learn. Find a way to understand yourself. Grow your skills to manage your brain under pressure and, and, and engage in that last 8%. Because that's when you're going to find, you know, that, that A, you feel more proud of yourself, by the way but you're also going to be more productive and make more things happen. Mm. And of course, we know what fear does to our body and the immune system. It just erodes it and makes us sick and ill uh, physically as well. And then, of course, as you said, it does affect our ability to make decisions. So whether we decide not to decide, which is a decision, correct, or, or we act on that fear, which then can be aggressive behavior and then, we we burn some bridges and relationships as part of it. Well, man, where did our time go, JP? We're already getting to the end of the show. Yeah. Well, listen, I've so enjoyed this. And again, Ken, the, the great work you've been doing for you know three years now is amazing. And so I, I feel fortunate to be asked to be part of this. Well, thank thank Why you out there. Now, before we go, and, and a couple more questions, so we're not done completely yet, but thank you for that, is how could people find out more about you, JP? Sure. So, um, I mean, you can Google my name, but I've got a weird name, so best to go to a couple places. One is, you know, go onto your favorite podcast platform and look for the last 8% podcast. That's one way. Another way is to go to our, our organization, which is the Institute for health and human potential, but it's easy just to go IHHP.com. That's I2HSP.com. That's another way. Um, that's probably your best bet in terms of getting to know, uh, you know, and uh, the book is in, you know, bookstores kind of everywhere, but uh, you know, what's great is that there's lots of ways that you can access the learning, you know, without necessarily having to go and buy the book. Um, and so, you know, buy the book if you want, by all means. Um, but there's a lot By the way, the book, the book title is Performance Under Pressure, The Science of Doing What? Doing Your Best When It Matters Most. Yeah. Just I so think. that people can look that up. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Wonderful. So to wrap up, JP, what would be the last sort of tidbit of wisdom, encouragement, insight you could leave the listeners that you haven't shared up to this point? Yeah, I mean, this is going to sound like kind of bizarre, you know, counsel, so to speak. Counsel sounds so, such a funny word, a bizarre suggestion. But 
I, I do have a really strong belief that we're gonna all gonna die soon. And I mean that. And and I don't mean like next week. I mean, you know, when we're 85, 90, but, but it could be sooner than that. I have a wish for folks, which is that you don't, uh, let me, let me back up and say this. I've been to six Olympic games now and you don't want to leave. The worst thing an athlete or a team can do is leave feeling like we didn't take our shots, leave with regret. You don't want to leave with regret. You don't want to leave an Olympics with regret. You only get one or two Olympics in the same way we get only one or, you know, in some ways we get only one life. And if you're just by listening to this podcast, you already have so much going for you in the world. You know, when you look at a world population, just that people have self-selected to this podcast says so much about who they are. So mm. don't waste this one life, right? If we're going to die soon, don't waste moments thinking about the past, worrying about the future, worrying about a relationship. No, get into it, take action. I mean, to be honest, that's what the whole last 8% podcast for me is about is I want to challenge people to take action on their last 8% because I want people to live feeling their regret that can sometimes happen. That to, that to me is it. So I want to challenge mm -hmm. people, and, you know, to, to, you know, I don't want to wish people good luck as we kind of finish this. I want to wish them two things, not good luck, but good preparation. Learn, 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 you know, learn about yourself, learn about the world. So not good luck, but good preparation and then good courage. You know, to really take that risk, to, to step into that last 8%, you will feel better about yourself for it and, and the world will start to be shaped in much more, you know, kind of profound ways that, that will really, you know, you'll leave and you'll, you'll think, ah, no regret, I really went for it. Mm. Well, thank you again, JP. Much, much appreciated. My pleasure. Well, SOS listeners, JP has shared a lot. His book is performing under pressure. Go find out more. We'll make sure that his websites are in the show notes. But as JP has shared with you, take action. You know, the last thing you want to do is to be unused at the end of your life, as JP has mentioned. And so our greatest level of contribution is when we are feeling fulfilled ourselves, not from a self-centered point of view, but from a self-honoring point of view. And you bring your best and you do your best and get the skills, find out how you can complete that last 8% in whatever part of your life it is. Maybe it's physical, maybe there's decisions that you haven't made, maybe there are some relationships that you've been avoiding that difficult conversation with. Well then go just do it as they say at Nike. So thank you as always for taking your most valuable commodity, your time and sharing it with us. If you like what we're doing, please share, pass it on, let other people know, leave a positive comment on whatever platform you are consuming this on. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.